The Guardian. Welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Coming up on the podcast, 10 days of violence in Egypt leaves the country on the brink. We look at the revolution taking place before our very eyes. How will it affect the region and a watching world? Also in this week's programme, lies, damn lies and botched statistics. The big society suffers another blow after the much-vaunted police crime map crashes just hours after its launch. Plus, with hundreds of millions spent in the final days of English football's transfer window, we wonder whether the pampered millionaires of the Premier League will remain forever insulated from the economic chill. And... Jimmy Darman, Al Capone. You guys going to get into the liquor business too? The question tormenting Guardian Easters everywhere. It could be the greatest TV channel of all time, but is it worth selling your liberal soul to Rupert Murdoch to get Sky Atlantic? This is the Week in Review from The Guardian. Here to squabble over the remote control are John Henley, one of the crack team of feature writers here at The Guardian. And we liked her so much last week, we've asked her back. It's Riaz at Butt, The Guardian's religious affairs correspondent. Pleasure to have you here, both of you. John, start with you. What caught your eye this week? Well, I was, I was sorely tempted by um, the story of Mr. Alexander Andre, who you may recall him, 32 years old, um, found passed out in a Warsaw Park, minus five temperature with a most extraordinary blood level, um, uh, alcohol level in his blood. And I was intrigued by the sort of the doctor's comment that obviously they, they thought that in the way that he survived was clearly because the alcohol in his blood had acted as a kind of antifreeze. But the question I feel no one asked was to what extent was it responsible for him lying on a park bench in Warsaw in January in his underpants in the first place? <laughs> and Riazza, what's been in your eyes? Oh, I love the row between Mexico and Top Gear. Richard Hammond made a few jokes about Mexican cars, which were actually quite funny. James May insulted the cuisine. And then the BBC responded by saying, we're really, really sorry, but national stereotyping is part of British humour. I noticed, and the and Jeremy Clarkson said, there'll be no complaints from the Mexican ambassador because he'll be snoozing in front exactly. of the TV set with a sombrero on. James and now Mace, the Mexican yeah. ambassador has complained. James May said that Mexican food was like sick with cheese on it. <laughs> Oh dear, that's that's very near the knuckle, I feel. <laughs> All right, on to things of an altogether more serious nature. The news has been dominated this week by a single story. The People's Revolt in Egypt as protesters engage in a battle of wills with their president, Hosni Mubarak. With international pressure mounting, Mubarak told the American news channel ABC that he wanted to step down immediately, but feared that chaos would ensue if he did. Now, as we record this podcast, the biggest demonstration so far, the so-called Day of Departure, Departure rally is taking place in Cairo's Tahrir Square. And to help me make sense of this, we're joined by Ian Black, uh, the Guardian's Middle East editor. Ian, these demonstrations in Egypt, they come straight after uh, those in Tunisia. People are asking, why is all this happening now? I think that when we look back on this period, we will see that the spark for what's happening in Egypt and little fires elsewhere in the Arab world was created by what happened in Tunisia. Demonstrations that began in uh, just before Christmas over slightly less than a month produced the amazing outcome of the flight of the Tunisian president who'd been in power for nearly 25 years. This had an amazing galvanizing effect on similar regimes all over the Middle East, which thought that in this spectacle of people's power that never really been seen before lay 
the way to open up regimes which are more or less authoritarian, more or less where uh, problems are untreated and people are frustrated at the lack of freedoms and opportunities. And what we're seeing on the streets of Cairo is the most uh, dramatic, um, almost unbelievable outcome of a process that began in Tunisia. So are we to believe then that this was a kind of powder keg that had been ready to blow for many, many years and it just needed the example of Tunisia? Is that, or has something changed in Egypt even before Tunisia happened in the last perhaps year or so? I think in Egypt over a long period there's been a sense that the regime is coming to its end. President Mubarak is 82 years old. He's been president for uh, the entire lifetimes of most of the people he rules. He's been in power since 1981. He's 82 years old. And people are fed up and wanted change. Until they were inspired by what happened in Tunisia nearby, uh, they didn't really make any headway. Elections are rigged. The police are brutal. Repression is common. There's a bit of a safety valve with a relatively free press, but no sense that the regime itself could be challenged. And what we've seen now over these extraordinary last few days is a sense that people have lost their fear. They believe that the regime can be challenged. Uh, they now have the added boost of mounting international pressure, most significantly from the United States, and a feeling that, yes, Mubarak can be got rid of. It hasn't quite happened yet, but the drama, the expectations are enormous. And, and maybe we've got sort of spoiled because Tunisia happened so quickly and the president left it on the plane pretty soon. And this seems to be, it's drawing out much longer. Mubarak is sort of holding on. Why is that? Is that something about him or is it something about the nature of the regime? Well, there's already been a huge development in that, um, speaking on television earlier this week, he said that he wouldn't be a candidate yet again for presidential elections later this year. It had been widely expected that he would go for a seventh consecutive term at the age of 83. So to announce that was a huge concession in the face of these protests. But that's still some months away, and the demand of the opposition increasingly vociferous, fueled by a sense of anger over the violence unleashed by the state, is that he has to go at once. The argument now, the debate now, the fight is over. Will he go sooner or later? The military, who are the backbone of the Egyptian regime, are rallying round him. They feel their own power and status is on the line. And we're seeing this being played out now across the Atlantic between Washington and Cairo and in the drama in Tahrir Square in the heart of Cairo as well. We, we mentioned this is being played out before a watching world and people have been quite sort of gripped by this watching it on the TV. What about you, John? When Just as somebody watching this, uh, people get very caught up in it. What are you making of it? I think you get extremely caught up. I mean, the thing that struck me was the um, elation with which you watched it at, at, at the start of the week when, when it seemed to be a real velvet revolution or, or whatever. It seemed to be almost completely non-violent, astonishingly non-violent at the start of the week. Then people started to talk, and I'm not, a, I'm not at all a Middle East expert, but it, you know, it, it was hammered home to me very, very clearly the importance of Egypt in that whole jigsaw and the, the, imp the incredible importance of this, this, this sort of peace accord between uh, um, Israel and, and Egypt that's maintained stability for, for all these years. Just tell me something about that, actually, about that moment, about the stakes and how high they are with, with the relationship with America, which you mentioned, but also, as John has just said, Israel right next door. I think Egypt is important for two reasons. One is that it's the most populous of all the Arab countries. It's got a population of 84 million people. It's always been a leader for the Arab world, culturally, politically. And even though it's declined from its heyday from the 1960s and 1970s under uh, 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 Gamal Abdel Nasser, 
Egypt is this terribly important country, a beacon to to the region in everything. And it's also important because with all that status and weight and power behind it, it was the first Arab country to break the taboo and it made uh, its peace with Israel in a peace treaty that was signed in 1979 and has endured despite a lot of difficult things happening in the interim since then. For the Americans, the key issue to do with Egypt is the fact that it has this enduring peace treaty with Israel, and the Egyptians have been well rewarded for that. The fear now, exaggerated in my view, but nevertheless there, is that this will change because of the political turmoil within the country. This thing about people watching Riyaza and, mm. what, uh, and, and feeling that there's a rooting for the protesters, yet other people have been saying, hold on a minute, this happened a bit in 1979 in Iran. Everyone was very excited. It seemed like a nice sort of uh, positive, progressive development. And then the Ayatollahs came in in a matter of months or just a year or so later. How are you watching it? What's your reaction to it? Um, well, I mean, I'm watching it on Al Jazeera English with the sound turned off. I'm watching it unfold on Twitter as well. And you, get, you do get very involved. You feel like you have a stake in what's happening. And when you see tweets about journalists or people that have been missing or people being injured, you get emotionally drawn into it as well. And then also the Guardian Live blog is very good at pulling in different bits from around the world and different types of media as well. Like John, I was really impressed that it was organised, it was peaceful, there was a degree of respect, and then I saw the pictures of people charging in on camels, and I thought, oh, okay, not so good. And now the worry has set in, and you see uh, people tweeting about snipers standing on the roofs of hotels. And you're hearing gunfire. And you're hearing gunfire, and you're watching people being beaten up and um, people being dragged out of their cars. And it's, it's very scary, and you just think... Something tremendous is going to happen, something tremendously violent. You know, we've had lives lost. It could escalate into something bigger. Was it a delusion, Ian, for us to think this could be a sort of velvet and peaceful revolution, as it did seem to be right at the beginning? Was that always fantasy, given the nature of this regime? I think what we've seen over the last couple of days is the, the regime sort of snarling into life, in tooth and claw, defending its fundamental interests. The military has always been important in Egypt. Every Egyptian president has come from the military. Mubarak himself was commander of the Air Force before becoming vice president. And this is not like a Western military, which is, you know, a small professional body in the service of the state and takes its orders from democratically elected politicians. It's a very, very powerful uh, regime with both political and economic clout. And it feels that if Mubarak is ejected by this extraordinary display of people power, then its own position will be undermined. So they are fighting back. Last thought on this for you, Riazza. Mm. There was a piece in The Guardian on the comment page saying that from a journalist in Lebanon saying this has been a tremendous boost for Arab self-esteem, saying that Arabs around the world had often bought into this idea they were somehow passive, and yet here they are taking their destiny into their own hands and Arabs around the world are applauding. Uh, you're the sometime presenter of Islamophonic on the, on the Guardian website. I'm, I'm just interested what you're hearing, whether this is somehow a boost for Muslims around the world. Are they having that kind of reaction to watching what's going on? I think there is a sense that um, Arabs in the Middle East, uh, they're all oil sheikhs and they're all fairly passive and, and they don't really get involved in their uh, politics. Um, and so I think it's very heartening to see that people are taking control of their lives and fighting back and standing up for what they believe in. I mean, there's a tremendous sense of solidarity with the protesters rather than on the side of Mubarak. But I think also what I've noticed is that it fits into the narrative of 
people's resentment of American foreign policy, basically. Like, you know, the US won't slap Mubarak down as hard as people want him to. And it's because they've got a vested interest in keeping some kind of stability in Egypt so they can protect their friends Israel. So I am seeing some kind of resentment towards the West as well in shoring up Mubarak for as long as they have. Quick response to that, Ian. Well, I mean, there may be resentment about shoring up Mubarak, but it's changed. I mean, they've now dropped him. So in a sense, so, you know, it's probably right to applaud America for doing the right thing. There's also the issue, of course, people are concerned about the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. It's the most powerful opposition force. Will this what looks like a democratic Egyptian revolution remains so, or will it end up in some people's nightmare scenario of being an Iranian-type revolution that began with the overthrow of a tyrant and ended up with another uh, tyrannical regime which is still with us to this day? All right, Ian Black, thank you very much. And you can follow all the developments uh, going on in Egypt across our blogs, video and audio at guardian.co.uk. Probably the most embarrassing incident of the last seven days was the grand unveiling and subsequent crashing of the government's new police crime map. The Home Office claims the data will make the police more accountable to the public, but many believe it's just another example of Whitehall's obsession with statistics. Here's what actor and comedian David Schneider makes of another fine government mess. The first thing I did when I heard the police crime map had gone online was to log on and put Downing Street SW1 into the search engine. Marvellously, the map told me this was a high-crime area, with a particularly high occurrence of phone-tapping, hypocrisy and attempted pulling wool over the eyes. Obviously, I made that last bit up, but wonderfully, it is a high-crime area. Surely this map was a good thing. At last, the public has access to all the information we need to make us feel we can only go to sleep with a taser under our pillow. But, as the saying goes, there are lies, damn lies, and the crime figures for Surrey Street in Portsmouth. Two of the bleakest crime spots on the map turned out to be police stations. Though I guess if you think about it, that is a place you're likely to find a high concentration of criminals. The map also gives details of types of crime. Burglary, vehicle crime, antisocial behaviour, and other. A surprisingly broad category, which, and I wish I was making this up, includes shoplifting and sexual offences. Two crimes I'm sure many of us have problems telling apart. Throwing them together in the same category certainly won't dispel the image a lot of people have of the police that they think some of those whisper bars were just asking for it. So the map is basically a crime version of Wikipedia. Sort of accurate, but only sort of. Why don't they just go the whole hog wiki-wise and just let the public log on and alter the crime statistics for any postcode they want themselves? And yet it seems there is a demand for it. Certainly five million of us crashed the website on day one, but isn't that simply because it's the crime statistic equivalent of googling your own name? What would we actually have learnt if we'd got past the error message? What would it change about our behaviour, apart from the taser under the pillow thing? I can see what the government's intentions are. The map is clearly part of the pseudo-transparency of the big society. We can look at the map, see that our crime figures are poor, and demand an explanation from our local constabulary. Though seeing as they could actually be out solving crimes whilst we blether on, it seems to me this constitutes wasting police time, which is in itself a crime, which would then have to be laboriously entered into the crime map, and so it continues forever and ever. The thing is, police officers want to solve crimes. They don't need maps or league tables or greater transparency to do so. It all seems part of the coalition culture of encouraging competitiveness. 
Give this government another year and they'll initiate a transfer window where senior police officers go from one authority to another for upwards of £35 million. For this map to be truly effective, though, it should include the number of officers whose jobs have been cut. Whether those cuts are necessary or not, I'm just amazed that the much-vaunted frontline services we're meant to be preserving include a pretty, if slightly scary, map. Rialzet, what about you? Did you log in? He put Schneider put Downing Street in. Did you try your own address in the search engine? Well, I did, and um, surprise, surprise, in the east end of London, there's an average crime rate that seems to be rising. I wasn't very surprised at it, but I was really intrigued by people's responses, not just wanting to know what the crime was like in their area, but also they were worried if they it would affect their house price as well. Exactly. That was which a is a very middle-class obsession. Will it affect house? <laughs> Actually, my rival at the Times, um, Ruth Gledhill, did tweet that. She said, isn't anyone else worried about falling house prices and, you know, what estate agents are going to say about it? So, yeah. Where in John, house prices what a- and knife crime. There you go. So, John, did you think this is a very welcome public service? Were you rather pleased to have the opportunity, or is this uh, I'd rather not know, to be honest. I'd really <laughs> rather not know what crime rate is in my area. I suffer enough sleepless nights. For taser under sorted, the bed, head under the pillow. anxieties as it is, yeah. And, and I wonder if it is about the house pricing. That's a very interesting thought that this was how it would translate. That's what did happen with league tables, of course. It had a huge impact on property. Of course. It's all we care about, really. House prices. The end of the line. Last week it was a cardo. <laughs> this week it's house prices. Every garden. <laughs> cliche is being met let's move on the madness has returned to english football that's how the guardian greeted the wild spending blowout by premier league clubs at the start of the week just before the transfer window slammed shut and while the rest of the country hunkers down for a miserable 2011 of cutbacks tax rises and pay freezes english football once again demonstrated that it operates in a parallel universe records were smashed as richard keys might put it and around a quarter of a billion pounds was spent by the shakes oligarchs and American money men at Manchester City, Chelsea and Liverpool. And now we're joined in our third revolving chair by Steve Busfield, the Guardian's sports blog editor. Welcome, Steve. Hello. Let's put aside the football bits of this story just for a minute. I mean, what did you make just of the idea of spending huge amounts of money in any area when the rest of the country is being told from government on down to tighten its belts? Well, Yes, they are huge amounts of money. Andy Carroll is uh, is probably not worth thirty five million pounds. Um, he went uh, from Newcastle to Liverpool. Yeah, but one of the things to remember about this, I mean, whilst you know, whilst it looks obscene, is the fact that actually quite a lot of it was the same bit of money moving on from one club to the next. So actually, the only people who really lost out on this were the Russian workers who uh, who found that all of their state. Uh, own shares went to to Abramovich, who's now you know throwing it around on uh, on Chelsea footballers. But you know, but Chelsea gave the money to Liverpool. Liverpool gave the money to Newcastle. It was the same bit of money that was moving around. So it's interesting the idea that Russians might lose out because I was wondering if there was an argument that said, okay, two hundred and ten million pounds, which is I think the figure, was spent domestically. Maybe that could actually help our economy, or is that, is that not where it's going? Well, and that whole that whole Margaret Thatcher will trickle down, and you know, and everybody will benefit from it from it in the end. And you know, the, all those Newcastle supporters who uh, who are now going to be buying new shirts having burnt their uh, Andy Carroll ones uh, have, you, have you seen the, the video footage of, of somebody trying to burn Andy Carroll's shirt and not doing a very good job of it why is that why would we, I would have thought oh, well, those I things think, are made of 
such sort of nylon. They would, I think they burn even without a match, those things. I've well, seen. it turns out, actually, they're much harder to burn than you'd think. Really? I just thought all those artificial fibres, I speak as a father whose sons both have football shirts, and these, they mysteriously, they come out the washing machine completely dry. I don't think there's a single natural... <laughs> there's not they a single natural fibre in there, so I would have thought they burnt very easily. Steve follows uh, football partly for a living. What about those of you who don't? I mean, do you look at this... Um, we'll start with you, Rialzat, and think... I'm a woman. Um, do me a favour. Is it legitimate to spend this kind of money? (laughs) Well, I'm slightly mystified. I wonder how they work out. You know, is do you get more money the number of times you kick a ball? Does it actually matter, or is it just a kind of? Is it an exercise in willy waving? Basically, we've got fifty million, or we've got eighty million. Well, we're going to pay a hundred million for that man. John, bring some mail. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued by how you objectively assess the value of of purchases like that. I mean, presumably, if you're buying a very young player for a lot of money, then you ho- you'd hope to recoup some of it and you'd hope presumably to get some of it back in a few years, a few years down the line when, when you sell it. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I mean, mean, for, oh, I mean, but Torres, I mean, Torres is a particular case in point, I would have thought, in that he's, you know, he's getting on slightly. He's not that old, but he's not. Is he 27? 27, 28, but it's not, you know, he's and not John 21. John Henley is saying he's getting well, on. He's not, well, in footballing terms, <laughs> he's, not, he's not a promising youngster in footballing right. terms, is he? So, Steve, tell us how and they it, work out the value. But, how, but, how, but, yeah, but, how, and, but and also, he's, 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 he's injured half the time. So, how do you actually, or, or is it just a complete parallel universe where money really doesn't mean anything? And is there any basis no. in... Yeah, well, there is there is some basis. Uh, apparently, uh, Andy Hunter, our uh, our Liverpool reporter, found that Liverpool's decision on what they were going to spend was that they were they were always going to have a fifteen million pound price differential between what they sold Torres for and what they would pay for the replacement. So one of the things that was being juggled around on that last day of uh, transfer deadline was, you know, if we're going to get, you know, if we'd got if they'd got thirty five million for Torres, then they weren't going to spend any more than twenty million on the person who replaced them. Uh, so you know, so that's, that's what. So so you know, so it was fifty million and thirty-five million in the final equation. So Andy um, Carroll's worth depended on Torres's worth actually yes, exactly. in that equation. Exactly. And, and what but, is, but, the, but the other thing is on transfer deadline day that you know that uh, it's a seller's market because you know because the people who are desperate to get in players to help them avoid relegation or get them into Europe, uh, you know, that is their last chance to buy somebody. So you know, so if you are if you are the seller, you know that people are going to you know going back to the conversation you were having before about you know about house prices you know the conversation we have all the time Steve it's never before it is a permanent conversation which we briefly deviate from is it how significant is it that they were the people involved in this Liverpool is owned by Americans Chelsea obviously Roman Abramovich which he seems to have bottomless pockets for spending Manchester City is owned by uh, I think a family from Abu Dhabi a Gulf petrol family I mean how significant is it this is foreign money are you know before this was part of the game were figures like this absolutely impossible to imagine Oh, I think it's definitely something to do with it because you know because if you look at the looking at the British economy, then we haven't got that much money to throw around. Uh, there's also uh, another element of this is the fact that uh, in the next couple of seasons, FIFA is introducing rules about how football clubs need to live within their means. So people are buying big before that starts because they won't be able to do this in a couple of years' time. Steve, let me ask you this as somebody not just as football expert but as a dad. I mean, you being the dad in this particular discussion, this there is a sort of role model question here. 
here, isn't there, about these people being uh, paid these enormous amounts of money, the message that sends to a younger generation, because they're not the, are they perfect role models, these people? I know that Andy Carroll involved in this exchange mm. has, uh, you know, he has a question, how history is how, is how she puts it. He was charged last year for attacking his ex-girlfriend, then a teenager. Um, you know, you do wonder about what message society is sending by paying out squillions of money for people who are perhaps in some d- quite deep way not the right people to be getting this kind of cash. Well, isn't that one of the reasons why the Andy Gray, uh, Richard Keyes thing was so extraordinary? Was the fact that suddenly football was deciding that actually it was moral and that, you know, that some things were unacceptable. I think, you know, I think footballers and their behaviour... Uh, have always been looked upon by their football clubs as footballers first and what they do elsewhere uh, later, you know, as, as a very secondary element. Um, you know, if you look back at, uh, at George Best, he got away with an awful lot before, you know, before they finally decided that, you know, he couldn't get away with, with, with that sort of thing. Um, footballers, I mean, footballers are just, you know, they're modern day celebrities, aren't they? They're, they're, they're like the people who turn up in Heat magazine, they're like the people who turn up in Big Brother. But perhaps the difference is they are not being paid the kinds of sums that footballers are now either getting paid or being sold for. I mean, it does seem there's a message in there somewhere, or about some I am find I, it, I mean, over, I worrying I, too much? I find it slightly, I mean, and, and I know that, it, you know, you can't draw these kind of comparisons, and it's meaningless, really, and, and, and everything in, in a real world. But I've, I've just come back from two days on the Isle of Wight, where the council is um, heading towards closing nine out of the island's 11 libraries um, for the sake of a £500,000 annual saving. You know, and £500,000 is, is what, a couple of weeks' wages for maybe? And it just, it just you know, it just seems sad really but if sky thought there was any money in it they would they would bid several billion pounds for the right feeder you know, for sky arts to own britain's libraries but you know they don't think there's any money in it but that is, where that there, where there sound, is money that in just football. on its face just what john has said yeah. just sounds warped but there's it? an entire industry that's built up around footballers and badly behaving footballers and the wives of footballers and they're like an economy in itself i mean if you suddenly took footballers and their wives out of the equation you know magazines would fold you know, we wouldn't have been introduced to the delights. Oh no! Oh no! Ben, our producer, is whispering into my ear mock Tudor mansions as if this is grounds alone <laughs> for despising <laughs> footballers. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you're 16 and you're yeah. quite talented footballer, but also you love books and you're thinking, I could have a career as a librarian or I could yeah. think about being a footballer. The message our society has said this week is don't be a mug. It's pretty unambiguous. It's pretty yeah. unambiguous, and that's, uh, that's what you <laughs> have to I wonder think, about. I think Steve uh, made a very valid point about George Best I mean badly behaving footballers and their flash lifestyles have been around for decades and it's just becoming more and more exaggerated as people start feeling the pinch at the bottom end the rich get richer does it mean then Steve that this might be where we leave it but that it is a sort of fantasy to imagine the time and football fans get a bit misty-eyed about this when uh, you know the the player was paid uh, three bob a week and used to polish his boots and walk up to the ground with the rest of the fans before the match you know is that did that time ever exist and you know should we feel nostalgic for it Probably that time did exist because you know because there was there was a salary cap until uh, until what forty years ago. But I you know I sport Port Vale and uh, I'm fairly certain that the, the players at our team are are not paid ridiculous amounts of money. And is that part of the reason why you support them? No, but there's got to be a but, reason. But you know, but I don't feel bad about <laughs> taking my uh, taking my children to go and watch Port Vale. You know, when Arsenal is the local football club, and I think you know, for the price of uh, one ticket at Arsenal, I can take I can take both my kids and you know and buy them food and you know get all pay for all the transport for about the same price. <laughs> 
The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. The passage of the 18th Amendment has given rise to a new breed of criminal. Emboldened by the promise of an easy dollar. Nucky Thompson, he's the county treasurer, but he lives like a pharaoh. He's corrupt as the day is long. What do you want me to do? Kill them? Yes. We all have to decide how much sin we can live with. That's Boardwalk Empire, the new drama about mobsters in Prohibition-era Atlantic City that's got The Guardian all aflutter. The Golden Globe-winning series comes laden with all the swearing, violence and opulent production we've come to expect from the best of American TV. It was broadcast here in the UK on the new satellite channel Sky Atlantic, part of Rupert Murdoch's media empire. And now, following Sky's £150 million deal with HBO in the summer, the only place to watch the likes of The Sopranos six feet under curb your enthusiasm and the rest more on that particular moral quandary in a moment but first steve bosfield again you're the guardian's resident hbologist and many would say that your interest in the wire borders on the obsessive i think you quite literally wrote the book on the wire so is boardwalk empire going to be your next addiction uh, well, no, because I uh, I have Virgin and uh, and Sky Atlantic isn't on cable. Uh, so Sky, but Sky uh, did this HBO deal, and you know, and all of their deals are structured in a way where they think, okay, well, you know, if we get football, we will get all of the football fans to to buy us. That's why they then moved into cricket because there was you know a significant number of sports fans who didn't care about football but did care about other sports, you know, and and all of these deals add up. And the HBO deal, which uh, when they did it, it was interesting the fact that the the newspaper that they told uh, told about it exclusively was us is clearly their attempt to, to get the chattering classes, the Guardian classes, on side with them. So somebody sat down with a pen and paper, thought they don't like football, they don't like cricket. What they like do, what do they like? They like they like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm. They like The Sopranos. They like you know the stuff that, that that Sky Atlantic is going to be showing. Have they got us right, John? I mean, is this the, is this the way that this demographic is going to get hooked? I mean, what about I don't know what your own viewing habits are, but are you going to be tempted by this? I, I would be tempted, but like Steve, I don't have Sky, and I don't think I be prepared to get Sky just to watch that. I mean, it would be a great tragedy if we were to lose... I mean, Six Feet Under was a fantastic series, although I wasn't living in Britain when I watched it. Um, but you uh, speak when you say... Mad Men, Mad... Mad Men, you see. see They've mad, got ma- me a Mad Men. This is a big problem in I mean, my life that is and in my household. Problem, you know. Because there it was on BBC Four, and we loved it, and no ads and everything, and then suddenly you're going to have to... Now, we're all speaking about it as if it's a dilemma. Is that because, in your case... I mean, I want to hear what your plans are too, Rial. Is that you think somehow... It's wrong to be paying a subscription to Sky because it's owned by Murdoch. It's a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 mean, I pay a, a subscription to Virgin. Um, you know, is Richard Branson is Rich, less is evil Richard than Branson. Rupert Murdoch? Yes. Um, That's our lawyer's question. Possibly. <laughs> I have a <laughs> in your defamation <laughs> quiz. Virgin, Virgin, of course, is just a brand. You know, yeah. Richard yeah. Branson has very little to do with anything that has the Virgin but why brand. Is it? I mean, I mean, I do you Sky feel this, Rialza? Do you have some hesitation about signing a contract with Sky because it's owned by Murdoch and News Corp? Is that an issue? This, this is the liberal angsting of the Guardian reader. Are you going through it yourself? No, actually, and I would take Sky Atlantic but not the rest of it. If there was some kind of option that just allowed me to have Sky Atlantic, I would do that. I have no problems. If it means I get better telly when I want, then that's fine. 
So that's good. That's exactly what they're gambling on, isn't it, Steve? It is. But I mean, if you if you go on uh, most Guardian threads about uh, about Sky TV shows, uh, I think you'll find a, a very large refusenik group who will never get Sky, will never subscribe to it. So what will and, they you know, do? And, and, For these know, shows they're hooked on, I mentioned Mad Men again, and not <laughs> as if I've got some selfish interest in this, but what will they do if they don't get Sky? How are they going to see it? Well, there's a, well, there's a complicated little dance going on where where Sky have the rights to the to these programmes and have them only on satellite in the hope that people will move from cable to satellite to get them. Uh, at some point further down the line, will they sell it to cable so that cable can also uh, run these things? But there's also the the thing that the TV companies, I don't think, are quite uh, as cautious of as they should be yet, which is that an increasing number of people are just bypassing television and watching these shows via other methods, you know, via oh, BitTorrent. Well, oh, BitTorrent, this is the downloading. Yeah, so actually, Free these, these things are broadcast in America a long time before they come to the UK. And there's an enormous number of people going on the Boardwalk Empire blog saying, well, you know, I've already seen this. There's nothing <laughs> exciting and new about it. Um, and and, they can see and as soon as the series is over, the box set will come out. Mm. So if you want to wait for it on DVD, you won't have to wait that long. It would help, of course, if we could produce... TV drama series well, that were as watchable. No, seriously. For every like Boardwalk Empire or Mad Men, you have Cougar Town. Seriously. I mean, I know people rave about how amazing American TV can be, yeah. but it also produces a load of dross. And British television produces some fantastic. Yeah. So, this is the okay, so, so I'll give you Sherlock that Holmes America produces fantastic. a lot of dreck. I'll give you that. But can we <laughs> argue that the best of British is as good as the best of American? You're the HBO expert, Steve. What do you think? Well, you no, I, obviously I love The Wire and I love Mad Men but you know but, but some of the things that were shown on British television last year like Any Human Heart Sherlock Holmes these were these were no, but hang on, well hang on. Those, are, no, those, are, those are like six or eight parters aren't they oh, we, well, we don't that's, that's seem to do but we, do, yeah, but we don't seem to do these, these extraordinarily gripping brilliantly acted superbly written long running series do we? I mean, why is that? Yeah, but the, those... got Coronation Street. <laughs> no, don't laugh. <laughs> yeah, I said that seriously. I know, but he laughed. And he likes the wire and Coronation Street. You've been a foreign correspondent, John. TV. We we're only talking about Britain and America. Well, yeah, what about gonna, TV I elsewhere? I think it's well worth saying we should thank our lucky stars. We don't live in France, frankly, because French television. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, is this a national stereotype thing? Yeah, okay. we're almost on to Mexico. Aren't we? <laughs> it's terrible. Okay, we've been talking there about the very best of American television. Before we go, let's quickly mention perhaps the very worst. Some may argue on this. You may have read that the 1980s Uber Soap Dallas is being remade and revamped. So, panel, tell me which character from 1980s television would you most like to be? Rialzette's thinking hard as she channels her inner Sue Ellen. So I'm going to ask you, John, for a character from 80s TV. Well, I was, I was deeply tempted for a long time by Sonny Crockett, obviously. Um, oh, the Don Johnson character. No. Quite oh. simply because of the... Miami Vice. Because of the, because of, because of the white trousers, yeah. the cars, the, the hairdo and basically the girls you do have the stubble uh, and i notice you have your um, <laughs> sleeves, rolled, sleeves up. rolled up coquettishly <laughs> to the elbow <laughs> but, in, in homage know, in, the end, in the end i thought I'd, I'd i'd better turn him down and actually i would go for um uh, somebody from one of the greatest series of all time for me um which would have to be captain frank ferrillo uh from the hill street blues who, who which which was the series that for me uh i mean you know it, it sort of it, it set the set the so sort of the, the wire before the for, wire, for all, I would say. Or for all subsequent 
great American okay, cop series. You and because I still ask now, I still, if I'm confronted with a particularly thorny dilemma, mm-hmm. I, I still find myself asking now, what would Frank, what would Frank do okay. in this situation? <laughs> That's fantastic. Rialza, who are you? Well, the, the, I was racking my brains because I was born in 1975, and so... My television <laughs> memories won't be as extensive as yours. All the old people <laughs> round the table. But I always say wanted it? to be um, Daphne, the blonde one from Scooby Doo. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Why her? Just she was really glamorous and very pretty, and her hair never moved. Well, she was a cartoon character, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Cartoon characters, any of the young ladies from Grange Hill, I was allowed to watch Grange Hill sometimes. But Daphne rather than Vilma, who I think was yeah. the problem solver, if I'm not I know. Mistaken. Daphne was all kind of like style, no substance, but Vilma could probably get you out of a hole. But nobody probably wanted to go home with Vilma. <laughs> <laughs> so looks are more important to you then. Yeah. Okay, so you, if it's not Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, who is it that you would well, like to be? Well, I think I'm going to plump for my favourite TV show of the 80s was Spitting Image, so I'm going to be the Arthur Scargill puppet. That's fantastic. Can you do a Scargill voice for us now? Well, you know, I'm from Yorkshire. I can go broader Yorkshire yeah, if you yeah, want. Yeah, I'm getting well, it. That'd be better. I'm getting it. <laughs> Steve Busfield. One struggle, one fight. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> what about you, though, Don? Yeah. Uh, well, I know, well, it's right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it at all until now. But I think um, Shaggy, I do feel a, a real sort oh. of, there's partly a sort of ginger kinship there. Oh, um, a little okay. bit. So, it's yeah. Because, um, he wasn't ginger. N- uh, thank you. The right answer is meant to be you're not ginger. <laughs> <laughs> Deep, dark, blonde, auburn hair is what you're meant to say. Thank you to Riyal Zetbalt for that, and also to Steve Busfield and John Henley. You'll find links to everything we've discussed at guardian.co.uk slash week in review. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Friedland. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.